especially as he's not here to wrestle the microphone off me. Um, but I'm intending to honour that trust. And um, talking from a, a passage uh, which begins in Matthew 3.16, and it's... Uh, sorry, am I not? Do I need to be closer? Oh. Okay, okay. Okay. Matthew 3.16, uh, and it's, it's quite a well-known passage. It's Jesus' baptism. It's the beginning of his, his time of temptation in the wilderness. And for me, it's a, it's a passage that talks about... Uh, I suppose the ups and downs of life, the drama, the challenges of life, and I, I don't know what's going on in your life at the moment, but I, I'm guessing there are probably a few ups and downs in this room, and certainly in the world around, there's, there's plenty of change and drama going on, so I thought it would be a useful passage to go back to, and I hope it's useful for you. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Matthew 3.16. Um, whilst you do that, I wanted to tell you a story um, about something that happened to me. Um, it happened whilst I was on a trip to uh, Warsaw in Poland a couple of years ago, and I was just off the flight, I was on the train, and I was on my way into the city centre. And, and I was having a pretty good day, things were going well, I was looking forward to my trip, I'd had a good flight. And I was just looking out the window, minding my own business, when a shadow fell across my day in the form of a ticket inspector. Now, let me be clear, I had bought a ticket. But unfortunately, what I didn't realise in that moment, because I didn't speak Polish, was that the ticket that I held in my hand was not actually a train ticket. I bought it from a machine at the station. It was a, a paying display car parking ticket for the station. <laughs> so you, you can see what's going on, you can see the way this is going to play out. I give him the ticket, he looks at it, he looks at me. I look back at him, all innocent. He says something to me in Polish, I say something back in English. The way I see it, in this moment, he has a choice, because he can see what's happened here, and he could laugh, ah, uh, uh, silly tourist, and let me get away with it. Or he could do his job, treat me as the criminal I was, and shut me off the train. And to my utter dismay, he chose the second option. He, he prodded me to the end of the, the carriage, when we got to the station, he fairly robustly invited me to leave the train, and I did. And as I watched the train recede into the distance, I was just stunned. I had no idea what just happened to me. Two minutes ago, I was heading in the right direction. Everything was going well. Everything was going swimmingly. And now, literally, I am out in the cold, on my own, in a place I don't know, for reasons I don't understand, with no idea what to do next. What I, what I did do next, actually, was just get on the next train and pray there wouldn't be another ticket inspector, and, and that worked. <coughs> The reason I'm telling you this story is um, it's just a, a silly example, really, something that we all know, we all see in our lives. There are, there are ups and downs in life. There are times when we think that things are going well, we think we've got life sus, we think that we've got life sorted, and then things change, things shift, something happens, things, something doesn't work out in the way that we expect, and we find ourselves once again floundering around just trying to make sense of, of life again, trying to make sense of the world again, trying to make sense of God again, trying to make sense of our relationships again, whatever it may be. Now, as that famous Irish philosopher Ronan Keating once says, life is a roller coaster, you've just got to ride it. <laughs> Thank you, Ronan. It's a profound truth. And it's challenging for us, you know, as Christians. I, I, I've seen it in my own life, and I've certainly observed it in the lives of others, that when you become a Christian, this roller coaster doesn't stop. You know, bad things 
still happen. Things still don't work out in the way that we, that we hope or expect all the time. And it's, it's challenging because it creates these moments for us where it becomes more difficult for us to reconcile what we're seeing and experiencing in our life with what we know about a God who profoundly loves us, who promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and says that he has a plan that he is outworking in our lives. We, we might find ourselves in those moments questioning, you know, praying that, that infamous prayer, where are you, God? Where have you gone, God? Perhaps you're in one of those moments right now. Well, I think this passage speaks into those moments. It helps us to know how to, how to deal with them, how to engage with them as we, uh, as we deal with the role of of life. So let's read it together, starting in uh, Matthew 3.16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. As this passage opens, Jesus is about to step onto the public stage. He's about to start his ministry, this three-year period of his life, during which he's going to roam from town to town, developing a massive following, which is going to change world history, gaining notoriety for profound teaching about the world and about God and about himself, performing extraordinary miracles, doing extraordinary things, a period that is going to end, if any is the right word, with his death on the cross and his resurrection. But none of that has happened yet here in Matthew 3.16. He's about to embark upon this journey. It's an important moment for Jesus, and it starts really, really well. Jesus is baptised, and a more affirming, encouraging event you couldn't ask for. The heavens are open before him, with all of that symbolised about clarity of vision for his life, the understanding of the will of God for his life. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, empowering him, equipping him, anointing him. And a voice echoes from heaven, the voice of God, with a message of utter love and affirmation. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. If I was starting a ministry for God, if I was about to step out in faith for God, this is exactly how I wanted to start. Clarity of vision, anointing from the Spirit, confirmation from God. If I were Jesus, I would be feeling pretty good in this moment. What I wouldn't expect is in the very next moment for that same Holy Spirit, that sweet, innocent dove, to pick me up out of the water and drive me into the wilderness, into the desert, into a barren land, where there are, there are rocks and stones and sand, no comfort, no shelter, no food. To be subjected to a trial, a kind of trial, in which those affirming, loving words of heaven are challenged by the mocking, taunting words of hell. This is what happens to Jesus in this passage. There is a complete U-turn in his circumstances. He goes from the highest high to the lowest low, just in the space of a few lines. He is riding the roller coaster. But look how he responds. 
If this were me, I'm not at all sure I wouldn't be praying that prayer. Where are you, God? Where have you gone, God? I thought you had my back, God. But not Jesus. He looks around at his circumstances. He looks at the rocks and the sand. He feels the sun beating down on his shoulders. He feels the hunger in his belly. And effectively, he shrugs his shoulders. He says, who cares? I've got everything I need in the Word of God. And it's not the only time in the Bible that we see people responding to hardship in this way. Now, this is a man who is utterly content, utterly satisfied, utterly at peace with this horrendous change in circumstances. Uh, another example is uh, Paul at the end of Philippians, where he writes this. I do not speak of being in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is looking around at this situation, and we know his circumstances got pretty bad, got really bad. And he shrugs his shoulders, he's saying, who cares, I've got God, I've got Jesus. An Old Testament example, Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and the cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Habakkuk looks around at his economic destitution, shrugs his shoulders, says, who cares, I've got God. My, my question this morning is, how do we get to that place? I would love to get to that place where our vision of God is so enlarged, so all-consuming, so overarching in our lives that we can genuinely respond in the same way to suffering and pain as we do to, to plenty and the ease of life. Not just stoically pretending that everything's okay, but genuinely responding in the same way to those two situations. How do we do it? Jesus' answer is that man is not lived by bread alone, but by every word that flows from the mouth of God. How is it that words can nourish us, can sustain us, can fulfill us, can content us in the way that food does our body? Well, three thoughts on this, three answers from the passage. One, we find purpose in the word of God. Two, we're affirmed by the promises of the word of God. And three, the word of God is not just words. That's where we're going this morning. One, two, three, and then I'll be done. So the point first. God's word gives us a remarkable purpose. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that flows from the mouth of God. It's a quote. It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Fifth book in the Bible, a Bible that records the uh, a book that records the, the time that the people of God spent in the wilderness for 40 years, between the time that on the one hand they were liberated out of slavery in Egypt, remember. Moses and the Passover and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And at the end of the book, they're, they're just about to step into the promised land, a land flowing with, with milk and honey that has been promised to them from generations to generations. And they're in the wilderness uh, in between. And if we were to read on in, in, in Matthew, beyond where I stopped, we would see that Jesus is tempted three times in the, in the wilderness, and three times he draws his response to Deuteronomy. So, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is drawing attention to the parallels between his situation and the situation that was faced by the people of God 1,500 years before him. 
And just to demonstrate to you just how stark those parallels are, I've got a full passage up here from, from which he's quoting. I'll read through it. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. Stop there. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. God led the Israelites there. These 40 years, stop again. They were, they were there for 40 years. Jesus was there for 40 days. To humble and to test you. The Israelites were in the wilderness to be tested. Jesus was there to be tempted. Actually, the Greek word for tested and tempted is exactly the same word. We just translated it differently in different parts of the Bible. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep this command, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. Again, both passages draw attention to hunger as one of the primary hardships of the wilderness. In other words, what is happening here is that Jesus hasn't just picked a nice quote from, the, from Scripture to tell the devil to shut off. He is telling the devil something very specific with this quote, which we need to get hold of. He is saying, no, 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 no. I will not be deflected from my path by this change in my circumstances because I recognise that there is purpose in my time in the wilderness. This is a self-conscious, intentional identification with the people of God. They were in the wilderness. They were humbled. They were tested. They were hungry. They were hungry. Jesus says, I will embrace that same experience. I will embrace that same testing, that same hunger, to demonstrate to you that God is once again on the move, that God is once again liberating his people out of slavery, the bonds of sin and death. He is raising up a new Moses, a new Joshua in me, to lead them safe through the wilderness and into newness and abundance of life. Jesus is a man who has his eye on the bigger picture. He is right here at the beginning of his ministry, looking forward to the cross. He knows what he's about. He knows his purpose. And he, is, he, he knows that the plan that God is out working. And he is judging always his external circumstances in the context of that great plan. And he is saying, I'm prepared to forego the pleasures and comforts of this world, to see this man delivered in me and through me. Now, there is a message for us in this. We might not have the same clarity of vision that Jesus has for his life. We, none of us have a, a script that tells us God's perfect will for us. But in God's word, revealed through God's word, is, is God's plan to our work. We know what he's doing. We know the end. This mission of restoration, of redemption, making all things new, which is woven like a thread through his words, the re-establishment of his sovereign kingdom reign in this world. And we know too that we are called to be part of it. We are called to be salt and light, to walk as children of light, to be ambassadors of the kingdom. Jesus said in John 20, 21, just as my father said me, so I am sending you. We share in his purposes. We share in his plan that he was responding to so purposefully and sacrificially in the wilderness. And just like Jesus, the more we can find ourselves caught up in the purposes of God, the more we can find ourselves captivated by the vision of the glorious kingdom that God is building in our world, the more we can trust in his sovereignty and will. In other words, the more we can really, truly believe that God is doing something extraordinary, extraordinary and remarkable in our world, then just like Jesus, the more we will be able to respond with joy and contentedness, wherever that leads us, whatever God takes us through to get there.
It's a, it's a hard message. You know, God, God never says that Christian life is going to be easy or simple or comfortable. Jesus said that if anyone is to follow me, is to take up his cross and deny himself. But he does promise that what he is doing, working all things together for the good of those who love him, building a, a glorious, redemptive kingdom in our world, is worth it. That anything that we are facing, that we are going through in the present age, is nothing. It's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And that's point number one. There is purpose in the Word of God. To the extent that the Word of God reveals God's plan to us, it gives us a goal, it tells us the end point. It doesn't make our life simple or comfortable <coughs> or easy, but it's, it does something which is much more compelling. It gives us a, a valuable, purposeful, glorious life. More exciting than an easy, comfortable, simple one. It's point number one. But don't stop there because it gets better with point two. There is a remarkable purpose, a promise in the Word of God that we're referred by. And what about Bible do something slightly unfortunate with this passage? In that they separate the baptism of Jesus on the one hand and his trial of the wilderness on the other into two chapters. There's a chapter division in between Matthew 3 and Matthew 4. It wasn't there in the original text. It's okay, it's fine, we need to have chapter divisions. They've got to go somewhere. But it's unfortunate here because separating the love and affirmation of God on the one hand and the hardship that we experience in our life on the other, it's a terrible habit that we have in this world. And it's a terrible downpour of our joy. We need to hold them together. We need to remember that as Jesus faced down the wilderness, he had those affirming words from the baptism echoing in his ear. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And they had a glorious effect for Jesus of giving him total assurance that he is not there by any measure as a consequence of a lack of worthiness on his part or a lack of love on the part of his father. He is not there because God doesn't love him. He is not going through this trial because he doesn't please God. He's not there because God has withdrawn his support from him. And we've got to hear that for our lives. Because if you're in the dryness, if you're in the wilderness right now, I'm going to tell you, because you might be thinking, it's not, it's categorically not because God doesn't love you. It's not because you don't please God through Christ as his child. It's not because God has withdrawn his support from you. We've got to hold the baptism and the wilderness together. Because when we do, we see a completely different message coming out of this passage. What God is saying to Jesus is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You are my son. You are my precious boy. You are my child. You delight my heart. You content me. You are so worthy. And so, Let's go. Follow me out into the world, out into the brokenness, because you and me have got work to do. And the message is the same for us. Before God asks anything of us, 
His primary calling on our lives is to accept those words of affirmation for ourselves. That God loves us. To drink in that love. To understand its heights and its depths. To allow our vision of ourselves to be transformed by what God says we are. Utterly accepted. Utterly affirmed. Utterly worthy. Utterly loved. Utterly secure as children of God. That is the promise of the word of God to us. It's the promise of the word of God to you this morning. It is all over the place in this book. You can't get away from it. I just picked out a few passages that demonstrate to us. He's adopted us. We have become his children. Loved by him as a perfect father. Fellow heirs with Jesus. Totally righteous. Totally justified. He takes pleasure in us. We are utterly secure in him. No one can separate us from his love. Nobody can snatch us from his hand. He will never leave us nor forsake us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're just visiting, what you've got to understand is that this is what this is all about. It all comes back to this. It is all a measure of the extent to which we understand and grasp this in our hearts. Before you even think about serving God, before you even think about rules and regulations, before you even think about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, God's primary call on your life is to accept this about yourself, that God loves you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and that through the work of Jesus Christ, he has made it possible, he has made a way for you to be worthy to live in direct relationship with him, intimate, close, familial, father-son, father-daughter relationship with him, the perfect father. The king of the universe, the creator of it all, the omniscient one, the all-powerful one, God. Only when we have had our hearts transformed by an encounter with this king, only when we've caught a glimpse of the kingdom that this king is building, only when we understand how this king sees and responds to and engages with his people. Does any of the stuff in the first point make any sense? This idea of denying ourselves in deference to the grand plan of this, of this king. Only when we see who this king is and we grasp it in our hearts does that become empowering purpose for our lives instead of cold, hard, painful duty? God doesn't say that life is going to be easy, simple, or comfortable. He calls us to get involved, to get ingrained in our world, to walk into the brokenness, to walk into the corruption. In other words, to face up to, not run away from, or be shielded from the pain and suffering around us. But before he asks anything of us, he gives everything to us. Utter reassurance of our position in this world. Utter reassurance that we are his and he is ours. That's the promise of God's word.
Final point, and this is a quick one, we're going to end here. But it's an important one. I've got like, a couple of little boys at home, and um, one of my boys, Alec, when he was like, between about one and two years old, he got up, he used to get up really early in the morning. I mean, your parents in the room will probably be familiar with this. I mean, really early, and I mean every day, including Saturdays and Sundays. And my, my wife and I developed a system for dealing with this. You know, we, we essentially tag team. One of us would get up and, and look after Alex for a little while, and then they'd go to bed, and, and the other one would get up, and, and we'd swap, and that way we'd both get a bit of sleep. And on one occasion, my wife had been the unfortunate person who had to get up really early. And she came back to bed, and I got up and took Alex downstairs. And Alex said to me, I, I really I want to play trains. I want to play trains. And this was a problem because the trains were upstairs. And, and so I, I said to Alec, I'm sorry, Alec, I'm sorry. This, this time, we can't play trains just now. We have to have to pay them later. Because we can't go upstairs. We can't make up some rooms. I mean, sleeping up there, she got up really early. She's really tired. She really needs some sleep. Okay, so just, can we just, just play something different now? And um, you can probably guess how that, that went down. <laughs> Alex, sort of, in the inimitable way of one-year-olds, managed to convince me that there really was no scenario that he could contemplate or even imagine that didn't involve him going upstairs and, and playing trains. And so I, I did what parents sometimes unfortunately do under, under this kind of pressure, and when I came in, and, and I said, okay, we'll go upstairs, but I need you to promise me something. I need you to give me your words. We're not going to make noise. We're going to be quiet. We're not going to bang on the door. We're not going to go in and jump on the bed. We're going to be quiet. Mummy needs to sleep. She's really tired. She needs to sleep. I need your word on this. Alex says, yes. <laughs> and of course, within moments of upstairs, he's banging on the door. He's literally jumping up and down on my wife. And I'm in serious trouble. This is not the system. This is, this is, not, this is not the way it's supposed to go down. The problem I have is that Alec is one year old. He doesn't understand what it means to give his word, to promise. And my message to you this morning is that God's word is not like Alec's word. God's word is sure. You can trust God's word. When God says that he loves you, you can believe it. When God says that he will never leave you, nor forsake you, you can believe him, you can take that to the bank, you can set your life on it. When he says that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, you might not be able to see it in your life in any particular moment, but you can believe him, because his word is sure. And the reason that we know this is that Jesus' word, that God's word, is not just words. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world, and, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which, which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father for the grace and truth. When Jesus says that it's not bread but the word of God which sustains us, you've got to understand he's not just talking about words in a book. He's talking about a person. God hasn't just said that he loves you. He has shown you in the most profound way just how much he loves you. God hasn't just said that he wants you, but he has come down here to get you, to restore you, to rescue you. God hasn't just said that you're valuable. He has paid a costly, costly price to have you. God doesn't just say he does. He hasn't just said he's done. His word became flesh. His word became tangible. His word became real. His, his word went to the cross and died for you in man, Jesus Christ. You can take it to the bank. Christian life is not always easy. There are wildernesses to pass through. There is good work to be done. But the secret of joy and satisfaction regardless of our circumstances is knowing that God is doing something remarkable. But that he asks nothing of us before giving everything to us. He loves you guys. How am I doing for time? I'd like to do one more thing. I'm, I'm, I'm finished essentially here, but I'd like to do one more thing. Um, because I know that it, it can be difficult to get into God's Word sometimes, you know, it's, life is busy, it can be complex, you know, it's just, it's just difficult to find the time. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to dwell this morning on what this, this book says that you are. What, what I believe that God is saying to you this morning. And we'll put it up on the screen just so that you can know where these passages are coming from. I'm going to read it out to you. And then I'll be done. You are my creation. I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. I created you in my image. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. I know the number of hairs on your head. And before a word on your tongue was on your tongue, I knew it. You are valuable to me. I know you sinned before the short of my glory, yet because I love you, I have made a plan to ensure you could spend eternity with me. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were still hostile towards me, you were reconciled to me by the death of my son. Sin doesn't have the last word, grace does. I have adopted you. You are my child and my heir. You are no longer an orphan. You belong to me. And I love you as a perfect father. All your sins are forgiven, all your unrighteousness has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you are now righteous in my sight with the very righteousness of my son. You've been saved by grace, you've been justified by faith, you are utterly secure in me, nothing will be able to separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. No one is able to snatch you out of my hand and I will never leave you nor forsake you. As you seek me and see more of my glory, I am transforming you into the image of my son. One day you will be changed. When Jesus appears, you will be like him, because you shall see him as he is. 
You will be delivered from your body of death through Jesus Christ, and your dwelling place will be with me. And I will wipe away every tear from your eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. You will drink from the spring of water of life without pain, and I myself will make for you a, a feast of rich food and well aged wine. You will enter my rest, inherit the kingdom I've prepared for you, and step into the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But most of all, most important of all, you will see my face and be with me where I am. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You are no longer darkness, but light in my sight. Walk as children of light. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. I have called you. I have chosen you. You are now a saint, a servant, a steward and a soldier. You are a witness and working. You are a citizen of heaven. You are an ambassador for my son. Through Jesus you are victorious and you have a glorious future. Thank you God for these words. Let them nourish us and sustain us and satisfy our hearts. Fill us with joy as we contemplate who we are because of what you've made us. And as we face the roller coasters of life, as we face the ups and downs, help us to stand firm on this rock, this solid foundation that will never change, that will never forsake us, that will never leave us. We love you, God.